Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from ToLoveHonorAndVacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based, biblical advice for your sex and marriage. And I am joined today by my husband, Keith. Hey, everybody. Rebecca is not here because she did have the baby. Yay! Yay. Um, and so they are resting at home. She'll join us again in a couple of weeks. But I thought I would bring you on. Are you, you going to introduce her? Yeah. Life? Her name is Vivian Louise, which means mm, lively warrior. Love that, and yep. she's lovely. Yep. Um, but I thought that I would have my husband on today because I want to talk about science again. Super. A couple of weeks ago, we had Connor and Becca on mm-hmm. talking about... Um, neuroscience research and how to read it properly and we have another question about research and I thought I would bring you on since you are a doctor (laughs) and so you read academic journal articles for your work all the time and you know how to read them and think about them and you've even co-authored some so I thought you'd be good for this and I get all kinds of questions about scientific studies now because after we wrote The Great Sex Rescue which was of course based on our survey of 20,000 women we're calling for people to be more have a more scientific approach in how they look at marriage and sex but sometimes that can go a little bit off the rails so a woman writes I really appreciate your obligation sex podcast episode and the great sex rescue what do you do when someone brings up obligation sex as a necessity for men's health there is an (laughs) article quoting Harvard researchers that was brought to my attention that men frequently having sex is a necessity and I was a bit taken aback and didn't know how to respond and she's referring to an article that says that if you ejaculate if a guy ejaculates 21 times a month his risk of prostate cancer falls I think it's like I don't know 25% or something yeah Yeah. the study originally came out like I know about the study. It became in the early 2000s, yeah. and then they did a 10-year follow-up afterwards as well, too. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so let's talk about how to use science. Okay, how okay. do you use science, Keith? So, So the first thing is that what this guy's done is he's found a journal article he likes, and uh-huh. he's using it to say his wife has to have sex with him 21 times a month, basically. Okay. It sounds like that's what he's doing. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. That is hideous. <laughs> I mean, that is just not the way science works, uh-huh. right? If you go to the American Urologic Society, I doubt you will find on their webpage... Public health advisory. Women must have sex with their husbands 21 times a month to prevent prostate cancer. You're not going to okay. see that, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't, you, you don't say because something might be good for somebody's health, it therefore now means that you have to do something that violates your own a sense mm-hmm. of self, bodily autonomy, all those mm-hmm. things. You just don't do that because that's not what a moral good person does. Right. Although okay. we do that in the evangelical church all the time, right? Yeah. And that's what you're talking about, the obligation sex message. Like, mm-hmm. or, or the modesty message, right? Mm-hmm. Men have a problem with lust. So women need to dress differently. Mm-hmm. You know? Men have a problem with porn, so women need to have sex more so they don't get tempted. Like, this is what we do all the time, and it's just wrong, and we should, that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, now, and I, I think it's also true. I mean, like, if the prostate cancer risk was, like, 75% for men, and this reduced it by 50%, that's a pretty huge drop. But, like, the prostate cancer risk is only... Uh, yeah, one in eight men in their life will so get prostate 12, cancer. So 12%. Yeah, well, I mean, the study itself, too, is... Okay, so so first of all, it didn't protect against the most aggressive and fatal forms of cancer. Okay. That was the first thing. The okay. second thing is is that it's one study. Uh-huh. Like, it's not the end of the story, right? Mm-hmm. There's other studies that have been done that don't show this. So there's still debate about this. It's not It's not a done deal It's not there. a done deal, right. Yeah. So so that's important well, and, to and, ask. And the other thing, too, is, here's, here's the thing I was thinking. So we do know that a strict vegan diet decreases your prostate cancer by something like 35%. So even more than ejaculation. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So strict vegan diet. So if, 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 my, if I were a woman and my husband said, hey, I read this article that says I have to have sex with you 21 times a month. You have to give me sex 21 times a month because mm-hmm. it's good for my prostate. I'd say, okay, and you're also becoming a strict vegan. But I like steak, and I'm going to keep eating that in front of you because I need to keep my iron levels up if I need that much energy. Right, <laughs> you know? okay. And this is the thing, guys. Like, if a guy wouldn't take something... I think women shouldn't take it either. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a justice issue. There's, there's, a, there's, a, mm-hmm. there's a fairness issue here, right? So you have to be fair to both partners. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, the, I love, uh, here's another Harvard study, um, the long-term happiness study that, where they followed the same men and their spouses and their kids. I think they started in the 50s or 40s or something. Yeah. I've talked about the study before, but yeah. it's, it's the long-term happiness study. And what they found was the biggest predictor for longevity and for not getting senility, Alzheimer's, et cetera, was connectedness and good relationships. Yeah. So you want to build into your marriage, not sabotage your marriage. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's actually a really good point because the other thing is here too is that all this study showed this this study that's one of other studies this study showed there was a correlation mm-hmm. between the frequency of ejaculation and prostate cancer right, right? Mm-hmm. there was a correlation now what that's the other thing about science is and this is if you're a science person you know what i'm about to say next right is correlation is not causation 
Uh-huh. So if two things are correlated, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily caused. Right. The one causes the other. Yeah. Right? It could just be that they're related. Something else is binding those two things Yeah, so together. the kind of guy who would ejaculate 21 times a month is There may doing be something, something else about him that makes <sighs> his risk for prostate cancer lower, and this is just a marker of it. It's mm-hmm. not the cause of it. It's a marker of it. Like, for instance, like maybe their relationships with their spouses is so good that they are naturally having sex 21 times a month or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be that. Or, 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 you know, we don't really know. But you can't say that it's the causative thing. Right. And the other thing and, is... And if it's the causative thing, like, why is that her problem? Yeah, because, like, like, <laughs> like, like a, it says that a man who ejaculates 20 times a month, it doesn't say a man who has sex with his wife. Like, you Yeah, can, yeah, the study specifically said they don't know if there's a difference between those two things. I think. Yeah. I can't remember. I haven't... I haven't I've only read comments about the study. I, I must admit, I haven't read the actual study, but I... I have heard about this before, so I've read yeah. the comments about the study. But I think the point that we're trying to make is when you're looking at a scientific study, mm-hmm. there are certain questions you need to ask, which is like, what is this study being used for? And is that appropriate? Yeah. So, you know, is it appropriate to take a study and therefore tell women that they need to give up bodily autonomy? Well, sorry. It, you should, it should make you think twice, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. for instance, here's the big thing for me. So, like, if ejaculation does decrease prostate cancer, right? And there's 21 times a month is the target, right? He should take on at least half that load as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of work, right? <laughs> like, it's like, he should take half that on. And I, I'm kind of joking. But, you know, the thing that really upsets me in the evangelical church is there are people out there who will be horribly offended that I said that because yeah. that means you're saying he should masturbate. And right. masturbating is a sin. How dare you say that? Yeah. Because that you're telling, you're saying he should be sinning. Yeah. And yet... We think that forcing a woman to have sex with her husband when she doesn't want to 21 times a month is not a sin? Like, that's a loving, Christ-like way to behave to your spouse? Yeah. Yeah. Are we really seriously going to think we need to rethink a lot of these things. Yeah. This doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So, yeah. So look at, like, how are they using the study? Is it appropriate to use the study that way? Is it the definitive study? And in this case, it's not because there's contradictory studies and it's yeah. not a meta-analysis. And, and I think that we should watch this because this could be something that is an evolving area of literature and we might learn more in this future. And yeah. I think, I think the, the takeaway that most urologists, I think, are saying is, hey, Sex has lots of benefits for you. Mm-hmm. You talk about this all the time. Yeah. It helps with sleep. It helps with heart health. It helps with all, all the kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, right? it helps with mood, so, mental so why illness. not create a relationship where you're going to have more sex by being a good spouse mm-hmm. and by investing in your relationship and working at prioritizing sex? Yeah. That's a good takeaway from this. Yeah. Turning it into an obligation for one spouse mm-hmm. and making them guilted into doing something is not what anyone would take away from this who you know, wanted to treat science properly. Yeah, because we also know that the obligation sex message carries yeah. with it negative outcomes. Absolutely, and so, absolutely. And so, you know, so so making it into an obligation then has public health outcomes for her, which aren't good, and that's going to affect the couple, which also has public health outcomes because when people aren't as happy, then they don't live as long, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you need the, so so we can't see these things in isolation. Yeah. And, and we shouldn't be using science to tell women that they have to act a certain way. Okay, so speaking of inappropriate uses of science... <laughs> We did do a podcast, Rebecca and Connor did that podcast, where they looked at what the neuroscience was saying about the differences in male and female brains and what that meant for libido and whether or not men were more visually stimulated, whether or not men were more sexual based on Mm -hmm. their brains, etc. And they made reference to Gary Thomas's claim in his new book, Married Sex, where he quoted uh, Luann Brizendine, who has done work with neuroscience who said that she, she wrote the male brain, the, the male brain, the female brain. brain, which critics have largely lambasted. Scientists have largely lambasted. And those books are now out of date as well. Um, and so Gary quoted her and we showed why this was not appropriate based largely on, well, lots of different scientific critiques in peer reviewed journals and some meta analyses, which actually show that what she's claiming is false. And Gary recently wrote an article debating that. And mm. we, I just want to address some of his issues um, because I think that they're interesting. Yeah. So basically, here's what we said, okay? 
There's a meta-analysis, and will you explain what a meta-analysis is? There's actually a couple of different meta-analyses. So yeah. what a meta-analysis is, is basically, like, so for instance, we have these uh, these studies we talked about earlier where they contradict each other. Some find something, some don't. So what a meta-analysis does is it takes all the different studies and it puts them together and it uses a, you know, mathematical way of pooling the results of the studies mm-hmm. so you can see what the overall effect uh, is. And it, it's complicated because the studies aren't always run exactly the same way, so there's mm-hmm. a lot of things you have to take into account. But that's the basic gist. So a meta- meta-analysis is basically a study of the studies that right. are out there. And it's kind of like the gold standard. So if you look at the type of studies you can have, you have like a case study, and then you have, you know, where you're just looking at one person, and then you're, you know, you look yeah. at a series of people, and then you, you know, look cohort at studies cohort studies. Cohort studies. There's all kinds of it, it, Where it goes up we have more and more scientific rigor and credibility Mm. um, or weight or whatever you want to say. And so a meta-analysis is like the gold standard. And what Gary was arguing in his article saying that he didn't use junk science, he really made two arguments. One was he told the story of a couple where the guy was happy, was was satisfied with a Christmas gift, which was just her in lingerie. Yes. Whereas no woman would be satisfied with a guy in lingerie. <laughs> yeah, most, and, most women would not find that a good Christmas and present. And there's Victoria's Secret stores, but there's no Victor's Secret stores. Yeah, yeah. And the point I think he was making in the article, I read the article, I think the point he was making in the article was is that he's doing the same thing everyone does, which is they, they take the opposite extreme to what you're saying. Because they say that mm-hmm. Sheila is saying that there is no difference between men and women. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. clearly know there's a difference between men and women because there's no Victor secrets, but there's Victoria secrets. Obviously, men and women are different. Mm-hmm. You know, now, no one ever says on your podcast that men and women are exactly the same and there's no, no differences between us. No one believes that. The problem that I see in the evangelical church is people use this concept that men and women are different from each other mm-hmm. to make cases that go way beyond the power of that argument. Okay? Right. Okay. So the argument that men and women are different, you know, clearly that men and women are different in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Overall, like there's different, like there's a lot of overlap between yeah. men and women, mm-hmm. right? But men and women are different in some ways. But then to say, therefore, this is the way that all men are and women could never possibly understand that because they're so different to men that mm-hmm. they don't even have a visual nature. Mm-hmm. They don't even have this concept. It's not even something they can even potentially understand. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important, women, for you to make sure that you do all these things differently. And if you think it's unfair, it's because you don't understand what it's like to be a man because men men are so much different than you. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's, and that's just terrible. And, and he uses science to bolster this because, like, even in his book, he was talking about how women, how women, it's a nice idea to send sexy nude pictures to your husband because then neurologically, again, he's using yeah. the science thing, neurologically, he will focus on your naked body instead of wanting to focus on other people's naked yeah. bodies. So, And this is the problem I have. I mean, the whole obligation sex message basically says that if a man has an issue, which is a sin issue in his life, it's incumbent on the woman to fix that. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's a Christian notion. I think the Christian notion is that we are each responsible for our own thought lives. We're each responsible for our own hearts. We're each responsible for what we do with our bodies. Each of us. Now, we can try and help each other out. I think I certainly think we should be generous to each other as spouses. Mm-hmm. But to say that you have to do something, because that is the way that men are, and women, there's no choice. Mm-hmm. So you have to just do this, because that's essential. And that that is what I'm seeing all the time. So they... so. When you see science being used to push you in a direction that just, that doesn't Mm -hmm. feel right to me. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say, is this really what this science says? Is this really what the Mm -hmm. message behind this is? You know, and you can tell that it's just a veneer of science. Uh And that it's not, they're not actually trying to be true to what the science says. You can clearly see when people are pushing an agenda Mm -hmm. rather than actually doing that a lot of the times. And Gary's a... Perfect example in this article. Because one of the things he says in this article is this meta-analysis that they're talking about, clearly referring to the one that you talked about. A neuroscientist friend of mine told me that this is not true or something. I forget exactly how he said it. Right. So it's like he's saying, I know a neuroscientist who doesn't agree with this. Therefore, just throw it out, people. Yeah. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, that's that's... not the way science works. Yeah, and he didn't name the neuroscientist. But but like, okay, for a meta-analysis, you're going to have... Many different authors, yeah. all of whom are highly trained, yeah. all their grad students yeah. who have been working in the, <laughs> in yeah. the well, lab. And also it's been out there in society being debated. Right. Right? Where then, with this one neuroscientist, he could believe that the earth was flat for all we know. Yeah. That doesn't make it true. 
Like one person's belief. So, and this is why you know it's a person pushing an agenda rather than actually trying to listen to what the tr- science truly says. Yeah, and and so I, I think part of the problem is that there's a lot of people in the Christian world who are trying to push an agenda and they're using scientific studies to do it, but they don't actually understand the scientific process. Mm -hmm. And so because they know someone who's a scientist, they think that they're therefore informed. And it's like, that's not how it works. And and that's the the great thing about science is it unmasks bias, Mm -hmm. right? Because I may believe something very, very strongly and I may do a study and my study seems to show the thing that I believe. And then what I do is I put it out there and then everyone else has a chance to rip it apart. Yeah. That's the way science works. And, and in, in the academic world, you publish an article and people tell you why what you did was wrong. You forgot to count for this. You mm-hmm. had a bias. Your question was leading. Like mm-hmm. whatever it is, they talk about these things and they tell you why you, what you did was wrong. And if you're a good scientist, you go, oh, I didn't think of that. Actually, we need to redo the study because they're right. That was a leading question or whatever. You don't yeah. say, how dare you challenge me? Yeah. And that's what you're getting. Yeah. You've done a very rigorous study, which to, which surveyed 20,000 women. You didn't ask women if they were hurt by books. You no. asked women, what's your marital satisfaction like? Mm-hmm. And you asked them, do you believe this, that, and the other thing? Mm-hmm. And you found that the ones who believed certain things, it was hurting their marriages. Yeah. You didn't ask them their opinions. Right. Like you asked them, what was their marriage like and what things did they believe? And you found things that people believe can hurt their marriages. That is really good scientific data. If there's a problem with the study, if there's a problem with the way you did things then academically they should confront that. They're not confronting that. They're mm-hmm. just saying, how dare you criticize other people mm-hmm. and say that it's harmful. You're not criticizing other people. You're just saying, hey, everybody, here's what the data shows. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I and hope that's that, how science works. Yeah. And so when you have people come at you with a scientific study or arguing you know, whether or not studies are accurate, we hope that we can help you. Just give you some pointers to think through those things (laughs) because science is really being misused in a lot of different venues today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But science is important. And the nice thing about the academic world, at least, is that we can debate it. And that's why, of course, we're putting our stuff up for peer review as well. So we will have links to some of these studies in the show notes. Before we move on to our interview with the Christian Neurodivergent Marriage Podcast hosts, (laughs) um, I want to do a special shout out for our wonderful sponsor, Femalay. Femalay is a women's wellness company. They sell cloth pads. They sell reusable menstrual cups, which are awesome. Some of them even have a valve so that you can empty them while they're still inserted. Um, They have these awesome vaginal melts which are suppositories which i've been telling you about on the blog you can buy them in samples or in full boxes there's in lots of different flavors so you can just have try those out they have wonderful teas to balancing teas and healthy gut teas and just awesome stuff so check them out at femily.com and we so appreciate our sponsors and now let's head over to this interview i am so happy to have on the bear marriage podcast today stephanie and dan holmes and they are marriage coaches Stephanie is a certified counselor and they deal a lot with neurodivergent couples. So thanks for joining us. We're glad to be here. Yes, absolutely. So tell us, you guys even have a podcast, a neurodivergent podcast. We do. So you can find neurodiverse Christian couples at the mental health news radio platform. And it's kind of all autism all the time, sometimes family issues, sometimes marriage issues, but we really wanted to focus on this specific niche in a faith community, mm-hmm. Christian, neurodiverse couples. Right. And this is something you guys go through yourself. Yes, because we identify as a neurodiverse couple ourselves. So we are okay. a neurodiverse couple ministering and helping other neurodiverse faith-based couples. Mm-hmm. And I get so many questions about this and I just don't feel equipped to handle it because this is just not my story. And I hate talking about things that aren't my story because I just feel like it's just what I think, but I haven't walked through it. So I'm just so happy to have you guys on to tell us a little bit about your story and, and your perspective. So let's jump in. What is neurodivergence, first of all? Because I know we use that term a lot. It's kind of a newer term, but what are we talking about when we say that? Is you okay if I take this one, right? Sure. Okay. <laughs> so um, in my research, I, I recently did a um, dissertation last year. So um, autism and the history of autism and all of that is kind of part of what I did. So the term goes back um, to 1998, Judy Singer. She's an Australian sociologist and she also identifies on the autism spectrum. So if you think about kind of the medical model or the clinical model, it looks at something as a condition, a syndrome, a disease to fix. 
And mm -hmm. this is problematic um, for persons on the spectrum. If the brain has wired in a diverse way, so we would say usually like normative or abnormal, all right? So mm -hmm. it doesn't really feel good to be abnormal. So we then said neurotypical and atypical, but atypical is a just nicer way of saying not normal. So <laughs> neurodiverse really talks about um, a different way the brain has wired. So in a broad sense, that could be ADHD, autism, other developmental delays or differences, learning differences, dyslexia, things that are not behavior issues, they are not mental health issues. It really mm -hmm. is a neurological issue. So the term started in the 1990s is finally starting to kind of catch on. We have a whole adult population on the autism spectrum who wanted to make a name and um, language for themselves outside of that medical model. So neurodiversity is kind of starting to take on. When we use it in our podcast, we are more specifically meaning people on the spectrum, but it does have a broader meaning outside of autism. Mm -hmm. And how often do couples get married and they don't realize that one of you might be neurodivergent? Well, we certainly didn't know. <laughs> um, I think it is more common, um, especially since Asperger's and high functioning autism was kind of a terminology in the late 90s. So that generation, you might be marrying knowing that you have that um, as an identification. But the majority of the people that we work with and coach and my clientele, a child, a grandchild, someone else got diagnosed. And then in that process of trying to figure that out, parent, grandparent, and adults mm -hmm. start getting because there's an 80% heredity rate. So once you kind of have that in your family, you can start to trace it up someone's family tree. Right. And we all think about this as like the big bang theory, you know, right. <laughs> I mean, for That's my generation, <laughs> yes, for my generation, no one knew about autism until the movie rain man. And so then we had a very, very stereotypical view of autism from that. But even the big bang theory is a very stereotypical view, but I think that made it more into the wider popular culture to talk about that. Yeah, I would say all four of the guys um, and Big Bang Theory are probably yes. on the spectrum. <laughs> um, but yeah. Sheldon is kind of that more stereotypical. But I think even from media, from Rain Man, why so many adults struggle with the stigma is because most people assume autism comes with cognitive impairment. And so mm -hmm. you think of Rain Man and he was institutionalized and he was a savant. And so you have that on one where he was not able to live independently all the way to Sheldon with a PhD. And then there's a lot of differences mm -hmm. in between and that looks different male to female too. It is more common that the guy is neurodivergent, right? About four to one at the, four to the one. diagnostic mm -hmm. flow. But they're thinking that maybe because clinicians just aren't as aware and females tend to be socialized a little bit more. They can mask and camouflage a little bit better. So we're not sure if it's really four to one, but right now it's being diagnosed four to one. Now I can, I can edit this part out if you don't want to answer this question, but like, how did you two start talking about whether this was a factor in your marriage? We can answer that question. So okay. our daughter was uh, identified first. It was about a two year process because she was a, a female and it was 2005, 2006. And girls didn't have it back then, according to some right. definitions. So um, once she was identified, we really started researching all the stuff about Asperger specifically. That was her um, diagnosis. And throughout the process, Dan would say, well, I think like that. Well, I do that. Well, why is that a label? And I really took that at first to be like he was pushing back on her being identified. I didn't realize he was identifying himself. So um, he wasn't actually, you weren't actually identified till when 2019 2019 yeah and how what what was that like for you Dan like was that was it a relief or was it more of a it was a non-event really yeah I guess I've been weird since childhood so putting a label on it that was other than the word weird I don't was, it was easier quirky. it was easier to consume than weird right <laughs> yeah I get that I get that. So when you're, when you're counseling couples, you know, increasingly younger couples are, if they are on the spectrum, if they are neurodivergent in some way, they, they do get that diagnosis or that label or whatever you want to call it earlier in life now, I think. So people are going into marriage often knowing about it. What would you counsel couples that are getting married? What do they need to know before they get married? 
So I think for some of my younger couples where there's been an identification early on, there's also been um, some interventions and some skill building. There's been some relationship and turn taking and perspective taking and um, things like that, that they had as services offered either in school or private therapy. So starting out a little bit different and, um, and, and everybody's kind of knows. However, sometimes people think, well, just because I know about autism means that things are going to kind of work out. So I would tell neurodiverse couples, you need to plan on having a support person, a counselor, a coach in your life um, for most of your marriage. Um, you're going to need some along, someone to come alongside. Different things happen. A marriage also has developmental milestones. So if a person on the spectrum doesn't really like change, well, your marriage changes when a child comes, when two children mm -hmm. come, when three children come, when job changes, mm -hmm. um, pregnancy, moving. There are a lot of different things that change the marriage dynamic and change is usually not the friend of autism. Mm -hmm. So being proactive and learning the skills and just realizing it's, it's like different communication, different culture right? We speak mm -hmm. English, but maybe some words are different in Canada and certainly are mm -hmm. in the UK, Ireland, and Australia. Same language mean different things. And you've got to know what you're saying and what that word means, or you could right. develop a faux pas. So I think for younger couples, I would say if you're going into it eyes wide open, you definitely want a counselor or a coach that understands neurodiversity mm -hmm. because traditional counseling is not going to work for you. And you need someone who's going to build you up and understand you and, and give that support. Right. I think one of the things going into it is the notion of being teachable. That's true in every aspect of life. But in this particular situation, there is a general rigidity. I don't know what the word I want to use it, but it's a general rigidity. And if I didn't think of it, not invented here might be a good way to phrase, phrase it. If I didn't think of it, it's not a good idea. And okay. And that just kind of, it, it torpedoes every boat you want to float, right? Because you, you don't get an opportunity to, to um, you won't take the input unless you thought of it. And it's that teachability that, you know, you get married and you're, let's just take the simplest. The first thing you do is go on a honeymoon. Presumably you're going somewhere. You're not going to just stay home. You're going to immediately come into a difference of opinion on what you're going to do the first day. It's going to happen. I mean, any everybody is going to have that situation. But if you go to that position and you are going to be so rigid, there's no give and take, then you're you're setting yourself up for a fail from day one. And it is that, okay, I'll accept the input. I will accept the feedback. I'll bend here. That kind of thinking is incredibly important. It's important to everywhere, but especially it's especially is exaggerated in this situation. Mm -hmm. And how do you get someone to understand that? Exposure, right? So number one, you have to say, well, I don't, you know, here's a couple of situations to where it did or didn't work out, but there was no acceptance of another input. There was no dialogue, right? I mean, those mm -hmm. are easily behaviorally expressed, right? You either did or did not accept input. There was or was not dialogue. That's generally objective. And then once you can demonstrate that the situation exists, you can now have a dialogue on what, hopefully you've had this dialogue before you get married. You can then have a dialogue that says you will or won't be teachable going forward. Mm -hmm. And if you've had that conversation ahead of being married, you should have the question in your head, is this a marriage I want to go into if the person is not willing to say I'm going to be teachable? This should be a good clue as to what this is going to look like going forward. So you're talking about rigidity yes. and kind of perspective taking. What else are some other ones that you have heard? Or what's, yeah, you know, what's challenging for the neurodiverse person about marriage? Like, because we often think about what's challenging for the non-neuro, like for the neurotypical. neurotypical person. We all, you know, we can think of a thousand things, but I would imagine that it's pretty challenging for the neurodiverse person too. I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like it's not challenging, but if you consider the marriage as a whole, not as the individual, the general oblivion that mm. the neurodiverse person lives in, that can be a very sweet spot to live in because you're oblivious. There is nothing impacting you but you. And that works fine if you're single, right? But if you're married and you consider the marriage as a whole and the marriage as a thing that breathes and lives, mm -hmm. 
that oblivion is a hindrance to that relationship. The hard part about that is it's not obvious. You don't know it exists. By its very definition, you do not know that there is a silo that you live in that is hindering to whatever degree a relationship. And it kind of reminds me, you did a bear, um, bear, is it bear podcast? Bear marriage, bear, bear marriage, marriage podcast. On stoicism. And I find this a lot in neurodiverse relationships because um, for some of our marriage where I was not happy, he just said, I, you know, I wasn't being content and I got the contentment verse a lot. Well, then you just need to learn to live without it. You just need to not have that expectation. You need to learn mm-hmm. to live without a, a, B, and C. And as I was listening to the one that y'all did on stoicism, that's, Stoicism kind of exists a lot in Christian neurodiverse marriages. So there's this oblivion, but then when the wife is saying, hey, this is problematic. Hey, I want to have more friends. I want couples friends. I'd like to go to small group. I would like to have people over. Well, we always don't get what we want. You need to be content with what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to be something that we're going to be able to do. And so there is like this little sense of stoicism that gets that little verse stuck in there about Paul said to be content in all things. And so mm-hmm. some things get spiritualized and that becomes a problem because if you kind of add some black and white rigid thinking with some verses taken out of context, that's going to create mm-hmm. some issues in the marriage dynamic for any marriage, but specifically mm-hmm. in this one, because it'll mm-hmm. be misapplied. Right. Now you're talking, you were talking about some expectations that people have of marriage how should we be readjusting our expectations? And maybe I'll get both of you to answer that. You know, um, Dan, why don't we start with you? Like, are there expectations that you have to readjust as a neurodivergent person when you're married? So I'll say this in reverse chronological order. Okay. Uh, going from let's, so let's, let's take this situation. You've been married for a good while, like us. You got diagnosed late, well late into your marriage. And there is some troubled water in your past. The expectation is you've moved on, things are better. What isn't obvious is that just because things are better, just because the wind stops doesn't mean the waves have immediately, right? Mm -hmm. There is a, the storm has passed, but the storm still has the waves stirred up. So things have calmed down. Your every day, your today, your tomorrow, your next week is good. But the general reciprocity in behavior lags that, right? Mm -hmm. So we used to fight over whatever it was. Let's say whatever it is, where we're going to go to dinner on Fridays. We always used to fight about Let's play, let's, let's say that's the case. It wasn't for us. We fought over different things, Um, (laughs) but now you don't fight over it anymore. Now it's next Friday. And let's say you haven't for years. Now it's Friday coming up the tension returns from her perspective because she's learned to fight. It's Friday. Where are we going to dinner? We've had that fight for 15 years. We're we're three years on the other side of not fighting about it. But think about how long it takes to unlearn a natural Mm -hmm. behavior that is that far far ingrained. You think that, okay, well, we didn't fight, fight last week and all things are better but there's still, there's still waves from way in the back. And that is a very hard thing to remember to expect is that behavioral changes on both persons. It's first mm-hmm. on the person that needs to rectify whatever change needs to happen so that you smooth your today and you smooth your tomorrow. But you also have to remember that the other person has learned to live in a turbulent situation. And that turbulence doesn't turn off immediately. I can't know how she felt then. She can tell me, but I can never really know. I have to make an intentional act to remember this used to be hard. So sometimes there is going to still be the waves in the today that echo from yesterday. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. And if you, when you talk with neurotypical women, they will say that they're living uh, Groundhog's Day or 51 first dates. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes the learning of yesterday did not come to today. And so the neurodiverse person is usually thinking, well, my intention was good just because they have a subjective point of view that the impact was bad. My intention was good. So you shouldn't have a feeling about the impact. So that's kind of what he's talking about is 
um, then things might get better in the neurodiverse couple situation, but she still is dealing with the emotional fallout from that. He's moved on. So now it's just complaining. It's just nagging. Why are you reminding me of the fight we had last week? We're not fighting right now. You're making us fight right now. Those kinds of things. Um, the, the AS person can kind of compartmentalize it, put it away. Tomorrow's a new day. The neurotypical wife is still thinking about those things that had impact. And from the neurodiverse person's point of view, well, if we're having sex at all, then the marriage is good. So right. it's all good. Everything's fine. What's the problem? Um, right. And the neurotypical wife might not be thinking that's the same. You touched on emotions there a little bit. And I know that's one of the flashpoints in many neurodiverse relationships is that um, the neurotypical person wants that emotional connection. And are there ways that, that the neurotypical person might need to change their expectations in order to be accepting and in order to find some peace and harmony? I think so. I think, you know, first of all, if you're in a neurodiverse relationship, you cannot compare your marriage to a neurotypical relationship. You have to stop with that. You have to also think that most books written on marriage and family and sexuality did not think of the neurodiverse person in mind. So you have to kind of change that mindset because that author wasn't thinking that when they wrote that book, right? So we can't apply mm -hmm. necessarily everything. But in changing the expectation, sometimes in, in lowering the expectation that your spouse may not enjoy or be connected in the same way you are and that it's okay to be connected at different times. So um, on one of the podcasts we did, most of the men said, I feel connected to my wife when we're doing things, you know, talking mm -hmm. is so disconnecting. I, I hate talking. I love doing. So the neurodiverse person is feeling more connected to the neurotypical person, but the neurotypical person is not really feeling connected. Maybe in a conversation, uh, maybe we had a good conversation about church. It went really deep theology and we had a really nice time and it was connecting. The neurotypical person might feel connected, but then they might say to the husband, well, do you feel connected? And he's like, no, like, oh, so offended, you know, by that. Mm -hmm. You've got to kind of learn to roll with some of that, that you may feel connected to each other at different times. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. It might not always be a, a moment where both people, because sometimes even when I ask some of the wives and even myself, I'll think like, this was the best thing. I was so connected. And it's like, oh, that was connecting. I was like, yeah, we were not kind of ruin that a little bit. So don't ask. <laughs> don't yeah. ask that question <laughs> if you don't right. want to the answer. And I think you asked about uh, another change for neurotypical expectation is you, I think all wives in neurotypical or neurodiverse relationships, just in dealing with a man, you need to be direct in what you want and, and in your needs. So if there's the mindset, I put this magazine out and it had a purple dress and I circled size six or eight and I laid that out and my spouse is going to see that. No, I want that for my birthday or Christmas. A neurodiverse person would say, I, you noticed you left the magazine out. It was dresses. Why would I look at dresses? And I just closed the magazine. I assumed you left it out. But mm -hmm. if you knew me, you would have known that that was the dress that I wanted. You've got to put some of that assumption stuff away. I have to remember then I think this is probably reciprocal from, from or on both of us is she doesn't think like me. So just as much as she now knows that I don't think like her, I have to remember the same thing. I, mm -hmm. she doesn't think like me because what that does is it sets a lot of un, unstated expectations. There's a lot of things that stay silent when you don't think that way, because you're assuming you're guessing you have this foundation that you believe is true on what knowledge you're going to have a conversation or a base a decision on, and it's not shared, right? That a lot of what you think of as foundational commonalities really have to be expressed instead of just, you know, going with it. I, I, I think this way, and that's how I'm going to make a decision. She thinks that we have to state, this is how I got to where I got. A lot of other people may not have to because you come from a common place of thinking. And, and for us, that has to be a lot more explicit. Yeah. And, and it almost sounds like, because this is, this is what a lot of couples go through. Like, even if you read basic personality types, the MBTI, you know, you have your, your strong STs versus your NFs or whatever, like your strong sensing thinking types versus your like intuitive feeling types. And you think about how different they are. 
but it sounds like what you're saying is like, this is just that to the nth degree. <laughs> put exponents on it. Whatever your profile yeah. is, put some exponential numbers on there and you're widening out your, your normative curve there. <laughs> right. I'd like to think of it less as an exponent, more as an extra dimension. Okay. Right. So yeah. if, uh, if the MBTI is, uh, if when you get your chart back, you get this square, right? And it's got quadrants on it. Turn it into a cube. Mm-hmm and add extra influencers on all the things, right? So now your cube can move three-dimensionally and your spot now does like this and like this. It, it, it makes finding where and who and how to interact more complicated, right? So I guess mm -hmm. that's kind of exponential, right? We went from 2D to 3D, but... <laughs> when we still we would argue early in our marriage, I would usually call him Spock from Star Trek or Data. Mm -hmm because mm -hmm. I found these two like different. So there was one time it'd be like, we'd have this conversation and it'd come across very spocky. And I'm like, and he'd be, I thought I was insulting him. And he's like the best character on the show. That's not an insult to me. Of course <laughs> I want to be like Spock. And then there were other times for anybody who watched Star Trek and there's Data and Data was kind of trying to learn human behavior. And sometimes he would say things inappropriately and, I, and that's sometimes how it would be. I was like, that was so inappropriate. Like, that was so like data, have you not found your emotion chip? Like, like what's going on? And yeah. was like, those are my both favorite characters. And I was like, so there's a combination here yeah. of not knowing what to do like data and then the overly analytical of Spock and that's navigating that can be challenging. At times. But I like what you said about Dan, like you didn't take that as an insult. Because those are those are cool people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In hindsight, they're very one dimensional people. Mm -hmm. Now, looking back, I can see that if you consider what it means to be fully human and the, the analogy breaks down, right, because neither of them were human. Uh, right. But if you consider the everyday, you're waking up and you stay that way. You are discounting, diminishing, ignoring a large part of what makes you human. We did a, a marriage book. I guess it wasn't really a marriage book. It was a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and its Companion Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And I made an effort to attempt to be more emotionally expressive. And I'll tell you, that was one of the scariest things I've ever done because it's, it's, an un, it's a world of unknown. I can, you know, it's easier to control data. It's easier to control mm -hmm. facts. I can make quality decisions if the only two, if I'm living in a very two-dimensional data world, mm -hmm. right? everything fits well in a quadrant. But when you add an, an, a, an emotional activity to it, when you add something that is unknown, mm -hmm. unknown temporally, right? It, now I can't know how to make a quality decision. It's a world that's foreign. But in a weird way, it's even more human and more fulfilling, even if it's scary at the same time. This kind of leads us into one of the issues that I often get questions about from neurotypical, especially wives, is, and you guys don't need to answer this personally, but you can be more theoretical if you want, but that sex can become very difficult because the neurodivergent person, and this isn't always, but you know, can, can learn the steps they're supposed to do, but doesn't always read what their wife wants. And so it's like, it's always the exact same thing. Uh, or at least this is the comments that I often get is like, how do I get him to see what I need or to judge what's going on and make adjustments based on the moment rather than just what he's learned he's supposed to be doing. So I'll start off by saying, thankfully, that is not what we experience. Um, <laughs> we have a much more communicative relationship there. But for some of the people that we've worked with, there's kind of two extremes. One can be um, if sex is a special interest. So if you think like how someone loves cars or golf or something like that, um, mm -hmm. if sex is that special interest, that person might be set up towards a porn addiction or um, hypersexual hyper and um, also, I've had um, wives tell me that their neurodiverse husband has essentially used them for their anxiety release. So sex is really more about an anxiety release or like, you know, emotional. Some people go run or, you know, beat a um, punching bag and, and 
some situations that sexual release is emotional release too. Um, so that's problematic with another book that's just come out that says you have to do that for emotional processing. That's really going to play into something I'm working against. But the other extreme might be, like you're saying, that kind of um, robotic in steps. Because another issue that can come with neurodiversity, and thankfully Dan is not this way, he's um, open-minded and curious, but um, a lot of people on the spectrum see any form of feedback as criticism. So like, mm -hmm. I don't really like that color on you, or could you do your shirt differently? Like, you're critical, you're nagging. And so in the bedroom, if the wife wants to say, hey, I would like to try this, or can we do this first? Or that comes across as criticism. Mm -hmm most of the time to a person on the spectrum. And so she's kind of fighting that battle of, do we do it the same way? Because that's what makes him feel comfortable. But if I speak up and say, this is what I need, or this would be you know, better for me, then he's gonna say it's critical and may shut down. And then you know, we're not speaking for a week. And mm -hmm. now he says, he doesn't feel comfortable initiating sex anymore because I'm too critical and I'm too nagging. Mm -hmm. So those two things. And then a third option might be, there are really legitimate sensory needs that if someone was practicing abstinence before they got married, they did not know. And so sex is obviously a very <laughs> sensory experience. And so that could be something that's a different challenge in a different way. But if someone has sensory issues and can't handle body heat or smells or doesn't like to mm -hmm. kiss, that's going to be a whole nother dynamic. So those are kind of the three Mm -hmm. different things that I see either hypo hypersexual I'm just using you as a release which then the woman feels objectified the um, sensory issue and then the I can't speak up or you're criticizing me which makes sex in a box for the neurotypical spouse mm -hmm. so I'll take the, this is a I wish I'd have thought of this when you asked about expectations but it is very important to have a conversation about it because uh, <laughs> I still can't read a face I still I can't I I I just can't. I don't know. I can't look at her and know what she's thinking, even if she's wearing nigh unto nothing. Um, <laughs> it's just true. Is this going to be uh, an adventurous night or is this just a regular old Thursday, right? That's not, I can't read a face and know that. So it, it, it demands a conversation, maybe not in the moment, but maybe a meandering conversation throughout the day. And I'll go back to the teachability, that willingness to listen um, and expectations, you know, certainly going into, you know, what does day one of marriage look like that, you know, it's, it's a reality, you know, what does all of that look like, feel and mean? So first of all, I want to, you know, it is true. You can't, I can't read a face and there's probably many others out there that can't either, but that means it demands that you find a way to solve that problem differently. If I can't just know by looking at you, then I need to be, we need to be more engaged in a specific conversation that can shed light on that information. Because if you don't, you're, you're again, hindering the relationship. Because there's mm -hmm. going to be that lack of natural intuition of kind of what, what could come next. So right. you have open communication um, about everything, including your sexuality and including your relationship to you know, after the fact, be able to say maybe things I prefer, or that could be different and not take that critically. Like, oh, okay. Next time I'll take that into consideration. But those, those conversations are very hard in neurodiverse relationships, because if they're like Dan was saying, if there's that rigidity and the black and white thinking, um, lack of perspective taking, and then you add in, in some teachings that sex is only for men anyway, Again, it's been emboldened instead of um, taught to be teachable. So we like to talk about being curious, um, being more intentional. Um, and instead of having a fixed mindset, you want a growth mindset. Every piece of feedback, according to Thanks for the Feedback by Stone and Heen, tells you every feedback you get is an opportunity to grow. And I can look at feedback as an opportunity to grow, or I can look at it as a way to blame you for you know, something in the relationship, or I can say, oh, I can take that on board and see there's got to be a nugget of truth in there somewhere but that's why even in counseling why traditional counseling doesn't work is the counselor assumes both people on the couch have the same brain wiring the same ability to communicate and same ability to take perspective so one of the first books i have them read is a secular book called thanks for the feedback because if you can't take feedback how are you even going to take feedback from a counselor or a coach or a minister 
Right. Feedback is feedback. So you have to really work on being able to hear feedback or you can't communicate. You can't take on new things on board. Mm -hmm. That's the number one book. And I like it because it's not a marriage book because it's got nothing tied in spiritually. Mm -hmm. Nothing is tied in. It's Harvard researchers saying, hey, this is what our data shows us about research. And that speaks to the neurodiverse person. It's factual. Mm -hmm. There's no emotions. It's logical. It's analytical. It's telling me practical steps of what I need to do to manage myself. And then it takes all that other fluff and other people's opinions out of it and puts into, this is what the data and the research says. And if you can do this, you will have, you'll be able to receive feedback better and help your relationships. And whether it's work awesome. or your spouse. So we kind of start really basic on being, I, I will put the link to that book in the podcast notes that goes along with this. That's the awesome. Best, Thanks. For the I love the book. Love it. Okay. I want some money from this stone and heen. I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you and I first started talking, Stephanie, and we connected around some of the marriage books that you felt were really damaging for neurodiverse relationships. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Like, yeah. So the, the three, from my perspective, if I were to rate them from what I've seen personally, and if so, for all of you researchers, I understand this is anecdotal evidence, but um, the first one was uh, Every Man's Battle. When I used that in thinking I was helping, like trying to validate, okay, I'm trying to help this person not feel like a deviant or a pervert. I mean, I, I want the person to know God still loves you and you can mm -hmm. overcome this. And this book was kind of, had just come out and was popular at the time what it turned into was, an, and this was a neurotypical person. So my first 10 years of counseling was neurotypical. The last mm -hmm. 10 has been neurodiverse and it created a sense of entitlement in him that I get to be this way. This is the way God made me. I'm just a lust filled person. You're just going to have to deal with that. And mm -hmm. you know, when I said, Hey, look, we're going to have like a little sex fast here. And like, until the relationship is worked on, we're not we're not focusing on sexual intimacy right now because you can't objectify her. And he's like, well, I'm out. I, I'm out of counseling. I'm out of everything if we're not having sex. And I, you're mm -hmm. going to force me to go to strip joints and watch pornography. Right. That's right. your individual choice. But the book told him that that was okay, essentially. Mm -hmm. If your wife isn't going to be sexually available to you at all times, then you're, you're going to fall back into your base. Yeah. Because she's the one you're supposed to transfer your sexual energy to your wife. And if right. she's not going to take your sexual energy, then where do you have to put it? <laughs> right. And that led yeah. to, um, someone who's going to let me interview her and we'll, we'll talk about that on the podcast. But, um, that person took that to mean that that meant every day that meant she was not allowed to say no, um, unless she had a doctor's note. So for over 20 years of marriage and several children, every day of pregnancy until the day of birth, even arguing and negotiating with a doctor over trying to get, you know, four to six weeks to be four weeks, even mm -hmm. saying, well, first Corinthians says we both have to agree. Well, the doctor's not part of our marriage. So he doesn't get to have a say in this. Mm -hmm. We both have to agree to four to six weeks. And I disagree. So mm -hmm. that took that into another whole another crazy situation. Mm -hmm. So that one I think has been the most damaging the most favored book um, of most of my neurodiverse and neurotypical couples was Love and Respect. And mm -hmm. at first when that came out, we even did the Love and Respect course at our church and the, the DVD curriculum and the workbook is different than the actual book. So mm -hmm. I hadn't even read the actual book yet. We just kind of did the workbook and the curriculum, which was okay. I mean, nothing was like a big ra major red flag in the curriculum, but then I was like, well, We've done the curriculum, we should read the book. And then I was like, oh my stars, that's not quite what the curriculum said about that. It really kind of went into an entitlement of respect, but not really an entitlement of love, an entitlement of sexuality, but not an entitlement of reciprocity and relationship. Usually when I have couples kind of coming in, they would tell me, um, you know, things were kind of going okay until the couple or the minister or the counselor gave us love and respect. And now he's more entitled in his opinion versus instead of hearing the love and the pink and the blue ears and she needs more love. It was like, that was optional, but yours is not optional. Now, mm -hmm. I don't believe the author intended that, but that's what it came out mm -hmm. to me. But back to intention yeah. versus impact. 
And then the third one, I used a little bit his needs, her needs, but even when I used it, I would kind of write my own notes. And I was like, this is silly. I would write like, okay, this actually isn't just his need, this could be her need, okay? Then on this page, I kind of disagree with this, so let's look at it this way. So I was like, if I'm gonna have to write a whole handbook to go with this other book, maybe perhaps I want something different because it's so gendered as to what mm -hmm. he needs and what she needs, it takes nothing into consideration that really that it could be flip-flop. Yeah. It could be um, of the 10 things I want five other things, or maybe I want something mm -hmm. listed. And that was the first book we were given in premarital counseling. And so again, on the surface, it seems pretty good, but when you kind of get into, it can become entitlement instead of let me learn about what you need, it somehow focuses on the his needs are more important than her needs. And so in my situation for over 25 years of counseling, the women would tend to kind of jump on, okay, well, if I'm going to meet his needs and he'll meet mine, okay, I'm going to, all right, where's the reciprocity? Okay, well, okay, mm -hmm. I'm doing my part. Where's the reciprocity? And for most of the guys over 20 years of marriage didn't really feel that the books really made it equal and then you've got to tie in some, some crazy head, headship submission that is authoritative. And then it's kind of like optional. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't get a choice because you have to submit because I'm the head and I'm the authority. I can opt out, but you can't opt out. So if you mix all of that in on top of neurodiversity, you've mm -hmm. created um, a very complicated situation that sometimes ministers, coaches, and counseling unwittingly empower bad behavior and bad theology. Right. So it sounds to me from what you're saying that a lot of counselors just are not equipped to work with neurodiverse couples. Correct. So where do neurodiverse couples go? Obviously they can listen to your podcast. They can come to us. Um, so one thing that we are trying to do, because I could probably name 10 to 12 counselors in the country who would, you know, refer to themselves as trained in this area. And there's maybe three or four who work with faith-based couples. So what uh, we have been endeavoring at Christian, Christian Neurodiverse Marriage or Christian, what is the name of our website? I can never get it right. Neurodiverse Christian Marriage. Okay. Neurodiverse Christian Marriage. I always mess that up. Um, we have for professionals, we are creating a course to help train ministers, coaches, chaplains, counselors, social workers, clinicians, how to proper identify um, what are the specific challenges you want to do things different. Everything that you have learned in traditional marriage and family therapy and coaching does not work. Throw it out. Here's like a new model. Here's a new way to do it. So we um, have started that um, kind of ministry for the purpose of training and then kind of working with us specifically. Um, that would be Autism Spectrum Resources for Marriage and Family. And that's more our coaching and counseling ministry. And then the neurodiverse couples training is more about training and trying to build up others because I have a wait list till the spring. One of my colleagues is 18 months out. Another colleague is 12 months out. So even right. those of us who are trained are, we're full. So we need other ministers and counselors and coaches to step up and get training and stop doing harm and do, and, and be more helpful in this right. situation. Well, I know there are a lot of counselors who listen to this podcast, so there is a good, maybe one of you is called to this. So really pray about that because it sounds like that's a tremendous need yes. out there. Think of one in 54 children are identified. That has to mean there's probably about one in 54 adults too, right? If we're taking the 80% right. So there's a whole undiagnosed population out there that you really need to know your differential diagnoses and you really need to know what you're doing on identifying adults. Right. Amazing. And we haven't even, we haven't even scratched the surface. We haven't even talked about ADD and some of the other issues. Right. Too, Cause there so. can be comorbid and secondary issues. And then that's, oh, all yes. cool. talk about the cube that really changes that changes <laughs> up that Rubik's cube. I'll try to have you back on soon, maybe to answer a couple of reader questions. That would be great that awesome. come out of this. So send them in and we will bring Stephanie and Dan back and try to answer some of your questions. So thank you for joining us. And again, what's that website? I'm going to ask Dan because yes, he's the one who knows. <laughs> So I think I actually said it wrong a minute ago. See, it's like, it's so if we can't know it. I'll tell you the first one though. The first one is www.homes, like our name, Sherlock, ASR.com. So that is one of our websites. And then the second website is. I think it's neurodiversechristianmarriage.com. 
Okay, I will check it out. It's neurodiverse Christian marriage, Christian neurodiverse marriage. It's something. It's christianneurodiversemarriage.com. I just found You type all of those words into Google. Hopefully you'll find us. the .com, you will find us. Okay, I, and we will put that in the podcast notes. And thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you for bringing this to people's attention. Awesome. We will put links to their podcast and everything in the show notes so that you can find them. And I'm so glad they joined us. I know this is a question that I get from so many people of how to handle neurodivergent marriages. So I hope that I'll have Stephanie on more and she'll be maybe even doing some blog posts for us in the future. So as we wrap up, a little bit of encouragement. Mm -hmm. So here is a new review that came in for The Great Sex Rescue, our book that is based on our survey of 20,000 women. A woman said, just read it. This book blew me away. I laughed at some parts because it is written in a relatable, humorous, down-to-earth way. That's mostly Rebecca's influence, honestly. (laughs) Anyway, other parts were deeply thought-provoking. And I'll admit, at one point, I was so triggered by my past trauma that I cried so hard I got sick. But that doesn't speak badly of the authors. It speaks badly of the abusive misogyny that set so many women up to be gaslit and misled by warped teachings. This book brought my past pain to light, gave me the language to speak my truth. I felt validated. I felt seen. I felt a little more free by the end of this book. I've since found podcasts and other media by these authors and have enjoyed their content. It's time for a new conversation around sexuality and the church and what God wants for our lives. And this book is an excellent start. That's great. And that's what we want. We just want to change the conversation. We don't want to own it. We just want to start that conversation. And we're glad to see other people participating and joining in that. And I hope, 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 hope that eventually some of the authors that we have critiqued will humble themselves enough to be part of that conversation too. We've got a great podcast for you next week. Beth Allison Barr, author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood, is joining us, and I'm so excited about that. There's also an awesome webinar at the end of the month. Beth Allison Barr and Christian DeMay are going to be joining me, and we will have more details about that next week as well. See you then.